Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head to head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Clash. So on Monday, I recalled Total Recall in all its gory glory. And today, we're tackling a movie that Chris describes as its kindred spirit in our most confusing Twitter clue yet. If only we had a way of seeing that clue before he wrote it and preventing it ever happening. Yes, from 2002, we're talking Minority Report. Okay, Jad, what's coming? Double homicide, one male, one female. Killer's male, white. Set up a perimeter and tell them we're on route. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his hand. The future can be seen. All we have to run on are the images that they produce. We see what they see. There hasn't been a murder in six years. There's nothing wrong with the system. It is perfect. I agree. Murder can be stopped. Exactly what it is you're looking for. Flaws. If we get any false positives, we are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The fact that you prevent it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. The system can't be wrong. Run! We'll have a winner at the end of the show. But which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Potters. You'd better drink this. Soon you won't be able to swallow, and then you'll be totally buggered. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Philip Kindred Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Total Recall versus Minority Report. Victoria's choices remind us why. Because we're doing a Spielberg special, and these are great films to compare, with one of them being directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Convincing. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is exactly right. Uh, so very quickly, if you haven't subscribed to us, if you'd be so kind enough to do that, it would be amazing. And also, if you could leave us a rating, that would be cool. And a review would be even better. And if you do leave us a review, it might be read out by the one and only Chris Tilly, a.k.a. Chris Thrilly, which sounds a lot like this. I managed to find a review that doesn't mention me by name this week. You'll be pleased to know. This is from Angela's man who says, a fantastic show that my wife and I need to listen to every week as soon as the episodes come out. Laugh out loud, funny, endlessly interesting and utterly charming. 
P.S. If you are Danny Boyle, it's probably best to give this a miss. This will break your heart every time your films come on. Oh. Have we not picked Danny Boyle movie? Danny Boyle has lost three out of three. Whoa. And every time I voted for Danny Boyle, I'm in your corner, Danny. It's Vicky and Alex that don't like you. <laughs> wow. What were the movies? Do you remember? So, uh, Shallow Grave, Simple Plan. Simple Plan. Oh, I'm fine on. with that. Yeah. I'm fine with that one. Right, cool. 28, 28 Days Later, I'm Legend. Wrong vote. That's the one I believe you got wrong. Oh, and Sunshine. And then Event Horizon, Sunshine. Definitely a nostalgia vote. 100% nostalgia vote. I think... If I'm right, every single one of those on the Twitter poll, not to attach too much weight to the Twitter poll, was in our favour in the uh, in the non-Danny Boyle corner. 28 days later. I, I just, I, no, I like I Am Legend. And 28 days later, the, the, the digital quality on that movie, I don't want to do it again. So on Monday, I took our ass to Mars. And today it's Chris's report on Minority Report. Chris, take us on a journey. Everybody run, said the poster. Everybody runs, said the trailer. Everybody runs, says the police force who stop crimes before they happen. Minority Report starts with them preventing one such crime, and then the guilty party doesn't run. <laughs> thereby undermining the film's entire marketing campaign. <laughs> but Tom Cruise does. He runs when told he'll commit a murder, and he runs for the rest of the movie, running up to, then away from, an array of colourful characters as he endeavours to clear his name. He fails and gets put away, which is where the movie should end, but this is Steven Spielberg circa 2002, so there's an extra 20 minutes that very nearly spoil proceedings. And then the film does end the end. <laughs> so, Vicky, this was a cinema watch for you, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, thank you for remembering. We were super excited in my house. We all trooped down to the cinema and had a brilliant time. And I've never seen it again until this week, but I remember so many little moments from it. I maybe don't remember the plot so much, but um, the tech was in love with the tech, still in love with it. I still think it looks visionary and incredible. Um, some yeah, some of the action sequences I'm not mad about, but yeah, um, it was a very enjoyable rewatch. Alex? Uh, I've seen it. This would be the third watch for me. Um, always just for fun. Wanted to see it. Steven Spielberg, Tom Cruise, why not? And it's a weird one in so much as this is a film that every time I've seen it, it's grown on me more. I remember I really was like, I thought it was decidedly average when I first watched it. Then I watched it again and I enjoyed it more. And I enjoyed it more this time. And yet it is a movie that I swear you watch and you go, hey, that was good. And it, it, it epitomises forgettable cinema. Like nothing about this film stayed with me afterwards. And already, even now, once we're done with this pod, I'm not going to remember Minority Report. One thing stayed with me. So I went to the press screening of this. Is I just started working in film journalism and I thought it was great, but I was also really annoyed that one of the big moments in the film was lifted from one of my very favourite movies. Oh, give us a clue. It's something. It's when someone gets murdered. We'll get to it. We'll get to it because right. I'm still annoyed. Okay. So, a bit of background on this one. It's based on a short story by Philip Kindred Dick. Um, <laughs> first really published go in... just going to go on and on. First published in Fantastic Universe in 1956. This guy Amazing. could see into the future. Um, uh, much like uh, we remember it for you wholesale, um, it's 19 pages long. But unlike Alex, I did read this one. So, differences. Uh, the short story is set in New York rather than Washington. Anderton, the main character that Tom Cruise plays, um, he's bald and fat and in his 50s. 
in the story, which contrasts with Whitworth much better. Yeah. Um, rather than being quite similar in this in this film, um, he's the he's the commissioner of police and the originator of pre-crime. And the precogs are more are proper mutants in this version. Uh, they're kind of idiots sat babbling, um, but they prophesize crimes, petty crimes as well as murder. And uh, the same setup happens. John Anderton gets told he'll kill someone in a week. A person called Leopold Kaplan, who he's never heard of. Uh, he investigates, find out Kaplan's a retired army general. Um, and some other, loads of stuff happens similar to the film, different to the film. Has he lost his kid? Uh, no kid. There's no kid right. stuff. Um, he's happily married in this version, actually. Um, and he eventually realises that Kaplan has been behind it all along. Uh, he wants the army to have total authority <clears throat> and survive military law. And so he wants to bring down pre-crime. And so the, Anderton realises the only way to prevent this and to prove pre-crime still works is to kill Kaplan. And so he does. He kills him in front of a load of people at a rally, uh, shoots him dead. And the story ends with Anderton and his wife imprisoned on a space colony, but pre-crime continues. Oh, okay. So it's the opposite ending, actually, of the film where pre-crime is prevented by Anderson. It's stopped. Um, also, the entire story is literally the same length as the extra ending <laughs> in the film. 19 pages, probably about 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, so this has an even more complicated uh, backstory than I think even Total Recall, but I'm going to do it very briefly. Um, David Hughes wrote a great book called Tales from Development Hell. Do you ever read that one, Alex? I've, I've got it. It's on my shelf. Yeah, I've it's fun. Into it. It's fun. And there's a whole chapter on, um, on this one. But um, Gary Goldman, who we spoke about on Monday, in the early 1990s, he'd optioned Minority Report with a view to directing himself as a low-budget feature and he approached Paul Verhoeven to ask if he would executive produce, put his name behind it, even if he was not involved. Uh, Goldman said he read the short story, liked it and agreed to help me out, then asked me if I'd thought about how well the story worked as a Total Recall sequel. Although it had nothing to do with the themes of the movie, there was something about the tone and driving narrative that made it seem perfect for a sequel. Uh, Verhoeven said uh, there was an introduction in Total Recall that the mutants were perhaps clairvoyant and that was used in the idea for the second one where Quaid becomes the head of this company that can look into the future and protect citizens by eliminating criminals before they do the crime. Thus, the mutants would become the precogs of Dick's story. Mm. Um, and so there was lots of wrangling with this script and whether it would be a standalone movie or a Total Recall sequel. And Goldman realised he could either direct the small movie or produce the sequel. Um, and Goldman and Verhoeven then discovered that Ron Shusett, who we spoke about the other day, had a right to write, had a contractual right to write the first draft of any Total Recall sequel. It all starts getting quite messy, but they all agree they're going to push ahead. Arnold's going to star in it. Verhoeven's going to direct it now. Um, and then Carol Coe went bankrupt. Mm. Screwed. Um, and then it came into the hands of Jan de Bont. Um, wasn't there some? Wasn't he a little bit naughty, Yanderbon, in in this story though? Didn't he sort of sneak around trying to get this script from under Paul Verhoeven's nose, like because he was Verhoeven's former DOP? Yep. So um, here's a quote from Paul Verhoeven: "Somebody whose name I won't name without warning took it away. Somebody who has me on their pay list like a Judas." <laughs> <laughs> so they fell out. Yeah. So Fox have it as a as a non sequel, a freestanding movie with Yonder Bont's going to direct it, and then uh, novelist John Cohen is hired to to um, adapt the story, write a new script, and um, Yonder Bont has a couple of flops. So he's out. Uh, Cruise reads Cohen's... big flops though. What was it? The haunting and speed two Cruise two. Control. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
Cru- uh, Cruz reads the script, likes it, passes it on to Spielberg, um, who felt it needed some work. And Cruz and Spielberg had wanted to work together for 15 years. Um, and the closest they came was Rain Man. Yeah. So Spielberg was directing Rain Man and then jumped ship to do Indiana Jones 3. And he often talks about that's his biggest regret because he was so he doesn't say this bit, but he was so desperate for the Best Picture Oscar and Director Oscar, mm. and that would have been his moment. But he, uh, I'm happy he did Indy Three. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Indy Three is more beloved and, and better remembered than Rain Man now. Yeah, well, we can talk about that in the next two weeks. Almost. <laughs> Are we doing Rain Man? <laughs> <laughs> so there was some time free, and then Scott uh, Frank came on board. Um, and this is this is when it gets a bit juicy because Scott Frank, I, he did a recent interview with a podcast called The Projection Booth. And he is pretty honest about how this went down. So he agreed to do a couple of weeks work on this. His history with Spielberg was um, Scott Frank wrote a movie called Malice, which Spielberg liked and nearly directed. And at that same time, he asked Scott Frank to write Jurassic Park. And Scott Frank read the book and said, no, it's shit. (laughs) And the kids are awful and I'm not going anywhere near it. So he turned it down because he wanted to focus on Malice. And then a few weeks later, he got fired from Malice. Oh, by Spielberg. No, Spielberg was off it by that point. And Spielberg obviously really liked him because he then sent a minority report, um, which was this John Cohen script was a straightforward action movie. It didn't have as much of the sci-fi in it. And he said, do a couple of weeks, do a rewrite, do what you can. And then Mission Impossible 2 got pushed back for Cruise. So Spielberg suggested they started over together, which was then a year long project. And so Scott Frank had to leave. Um, he was doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, for Gary Ross. He walked away from that, but he really didn't want to do this. And so Spielberg said to him, I hate mysteries. I don't want to do mysteries. I've got no interest in making them, but do what you think is right with this. And so uh, Frank wrote 30 pages of a mystery. <laughs> he said, I didn't want to do this. He said, I wrote a dead child. I wrote a drug addicted hero. I stuck two mysteries in there. I named the precogs after mystery writers. And I thought that would be it. And Spielberg loved all of it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was it. He had the gig. Um, He decided he sort of pitched it as the French connection in the future. Mm -hmm. That was the tone he wanted to go for. He inserted the Burgess character, Mm. um, played by Max von Sydow, uh, the bad guy. And he also rewrote Witwer because Witwer had become a villain, having been a hero in the short story. All the previous scripts had Witwer as the villain, and then he became the hero in this version. And so, yeah, that was it, really. Um, he's doing really well, Scott Frank. I like, he's a big deal. He just, uh, you know, he just uh, wrote and directed and produced The Queen's Gambit. Yeah. You know, The oh, Queen's Gambit right. on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, so doing well. Yeah, I like him. And I like, he sounds like he's a very honest chap. That's great. He, because I've, I've got some stuff, he's got some thoughts about this, how this film turned out mm-hmm. as well, which... Uh, not he's not entirely happy with what Spielberg did. And full respect to the production booth because that is where I listened to the Gary Goldman interview All for right. Monday's part. <clears throat> yeah, ah, yeah, good jobs. Um, so in 1999, before they probably got going, Spielberg pulled together a three-day think tank for this film to create a plausible future reality for the year 2054. Oh, I wish I'd been in that room. <laughs> just that's my that to me is just like a dream. Like just assemble people who can who think they can see into the future and just let them do their work. So full disclosure uh, and transparency for anyone who doesn't know, Vicky's obsession with future tech uh, borders on the worrying. He got an architect, 
a writer, an urbanist, a journalist, a computer scientist, a biomedical researcher, and they created a 2054 Bible, which was 80 pages um, to, for pre-production to create all the aspects of the world, architectural, socio-economic, political, technological. And Scott Frank says... Oh, should the, we just talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott Frank says the best thing he got from that think tank was that they believed in the future the most precious commodity would be privacy. Yeah. Which is really interesting because that's 1999 <clears throat> before Facebook had even been invented, I think. And, you know, it's come true. It is, it is probably the, the big, one of the biggest crises facing us is the lack of privacy. I don't we think have. we realise it. I think it's, I don't think if we said, what is your biggest worry for the next few years, it, we would even recognise that that's a thing. Mm. But that's the miracle of what we've given up without, you know, yeah. questioning it too much. Yeah, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah. So Spielberg went from not wanting to make a mystery movie to watching film noirs like Asphalt Jungle, Key Largo and the Maltese Falcon to prepare for this. Although he said the mystery is less a whodunit and more a who's going to do it. This is also very much like Poirot. I would counter at this point, but we'll get there. Poirot? I wasn't expecting no. Poirot, a Poirot shot. Like, yeah, you know, just that, you know, Poirot always gets everyone in a room. He's like, this is what happened. <laughs> so in the last five minutes, Tom Cruise is Poirot. <laughs> That's all I've got. I mean, I've really powered through that. Anything well else? No, it's no? great for me. Let's talk about the movie then with okay. my first section called Nearly Everybody Runs. <laughs> <laughs> so we're at the Department of Pre-Crime in Washington, D.C., 2054. And I felt like I was immediately struck by the visuals here. Uh, Spielberg said he wanted ugly, cold, grainy, gritty, dirty. Doesn't look like that. Uh, are, you, are you kidding? My picture looked grainy. I do <laughs> yeah. no, I did properly, but that's what he intended it to. Yeah, he used this bleach bypass process that removes the colours. Yes. And so it's a very strange experience watching this world where everything is sort of grey. Yeah. I mean, like, I genuinely have a problem with how this picture looks. And I know it was intentional, but the way that the, the light in every shot is overexposed, so the light coming through windows is just it's all mm. bleached out. Yeah. And the picture quality goes down uh, as a result of whatever process they're using on this. And the reason, it's, it's quite simple for me, is that I, it, it makes the future hyper real. And I think what's exciting about watching a sci-fi is seeing a very believable reality so uh like in terms of like the picture quality you want to go well this looks like tomorrow it's just there's a hell of a lot going on here that isn't in today's technology the minute you make it like uh, these crazy hyper visuals is the minute you sort of then move it further away from reality which kind of ruins why you watch sci-fi mm. i feel like he's trying to make this is his film noir but he can't go black and white and so this is the closest he'll go to black and white but i do think as well it's been very influential like i feel like we've seen that washed out visual style used yeah. all over the place. It's on the telly a lot now. Like crime procedural seem to, to use that a lot. CSI seems to use that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we meet the precogs in their pool um, and we see the images they produce, these precogs that can see into the future. And when we see what they see, uh, Spielberg hired the company um, who made the opening credits for Seven. Oh, that's really? Yeah. So they're the way. I've got to love Spielberg. That's brilliant. Mm. I'm using I'll it. Have that. I'll steal that. Yeah. They're good. I like the set for the precogs. These three, like, uh, sidekicks in the pool, Samantha Morton, and the other two. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. The twins. The twins. <laughs> the twins. The twins. And we watched John Anderson, played by Tom Cruise, investigating with his hands, mm. um, trying to make sense of the visuals by sort of pushing screens around in the. In and the also air. by being basically a very good estate agent. 
because he's like Regency features mm. or whatever. He's like two spacious reception rooms. <laughs> that's Barnaby Woods. <laughs> it's amazing how they co- combine like genuinely really like futuristic tech. Like the, the you know we mentioned the gloves on Monday's episode, but the fact that he's conducting and doing all this, mm. and it's like wow, that's that's kind of how people edit nowadays, and you know yeah. that's how they uh, they use. Yeah, but they like couldn't that. invent Wi-Fi. I know I said this a lot. <laughs> that's but... the bit. It's like we want. Can you get that over here? It's yeah. like yeah, kung give it kung This massive perspex rectangle. There you go. There it is. Good. That only took 20 minutes. It's a big wow factor, though, I remember watching that for the first time. Definitely. Again, some of this stuff becomes a bit de rigueur, especially as Tony Stark obviously watched this film and decided yes. he liked that tech. <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, like, to, we, we've talked about this on the show before. To have someone watching a computer, uh, using a computer yeah. in, in any way, shape or form, yeah. look cool and exciting and visually arresting and, like, you know, dramatic is difficult in a yes, movie. As the as the net proved on our very first as episode. But proved- also to make it make sense, because he zooms in, so he uses mm. it like we do to, to make the screen bigger with our fingers this is in 2002 so it's mad to me that they got that right but yeah. it, it, you've, if you watch what John Anderton is doing it kind of makes sense so the freeze frame drag and drop and full zoom whereas in other films like thinking of Jurassic Park even you know the you know the hacking into the mainframe thing which I talk about constantly what Lexi's doing that computer system makes fucking no sense whatsoever and they're trying to have you like surf over these files that are not in alphabetical order and all the rest of it to make a nice visual but at least in this it kind of looks like a functioning operating system and it's mm. not just it's not just fast cuts and stuff it's, it is it is about the operating system because you just have to look at uh, Swordfish the Hugh Jackman hacking scene <laughs> in Swordfish oh. which is all fast cuts and him sort of spinning on his chair yeah, and yeah. stuff and, and you're like oh this is and I love you Hugh Jackman but this is not a, this is not a good moment I would very much like to do Swordfish <laughs> <laughs> Love the start of that movie. Hate the rest. <laughs> um, We've done it. We watch uh, the, the crimes about to be committed. And as we say, they get lots right. But in this crime in the future, we're still getting newspapers delivered. I don't think that's happening in yeah. 2054. It's yeah. weird, isn't it? Because that's the one thing I picked up on. Because they sort of, again, like the Perspex rectangle in the, in the uh, cop, uh, the police station. It's the bit where... They've got it right that they've got newspapers on the tube that constantly update the news for you. So you're mm. constantly getting a, a refeed, like the, the new, latest news feed. But you're still holding a newspaper, yeah, like yeah. a digital newspaper that that's big. Do you buy them every day? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, our heroes take off in a flying hovercraft, which becomes a human Pez dispenser, which I quite like. <laughs> yeah. That's good. But what, they've literally, it's Slave One. It's Boba Fett's ship from Empire. It's yep. crazy that they've gone, well, I'll have that design. Seven, like that. Empire Strikes Back, like that. <laughs> uh, Cruz runs. Um, he catches the 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 murderer to be with one second to spare. Um, and as I said, he's Howard Marks is the guy, not that one. And um, he doesn't run. So no. disappointing. Um, I and- feel so sorry for him. He's such a, he, he's so well cast. Uh, Very well. He's a good actor, that guy. Oh, gross. Yeah. Great actor. But he also, he, he, he sets it up that like, this 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 idea of like you know villain and yet sympathetic towards the villain because you know his wife's cheating on him and like you know you're not sure if he's actually going to do it mm. yeah uh, he's sort of sitting there crying isn't he holding yeah. the the scissors because pre-crime because that, well that's the whole thing he sort of he kind of uh, embodies this whole question throughout the movie in one moment of whether the person is ever, ever mm. actually going to do well, it well he might not he might not have done it that's as it right. turns out yeah, yeah. I, I buy it for this film but just so-called crimes of passion in quote marks yeah. tend to be at the end of a pattern of very abusive behaviour 
There isn't really any such thing as I've never done anything bad to my wife before and I just murdered her. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter what she was. It really doesn't fucking matter what she was doing. But in the real world, it's very unusual for someone to murder someone without uh-huh. having beaten them up before. And you're reading from the production notes of Minority <laughs> Report right now. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'll buy it for this. It's fine because, you know, um, but the uh, it's, it's more interesting to me that he nearly doesn't do it. Not that not that what she's up to kind of thing. Well, yeah, we don't know if he was going to do it. No, I know. Uh, so he gets haloed, which is the future equivalent of handcuffs to put halo on him, which immobilizes him and gives him total paralysis. Into the next section, which I'm calling pre-crime stoppers. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we get our exposition advert now. We learn that homicides were getting out of hand and society was given three miracles, the precognitives. Um, and within one month, the murder rate reduced 90%, um, effectively stopped murder. They were called Agatha, Arthur yeah. and Dashiell mm-hmm. after Christie, Conan Doyle and Hammett. Mm. Um, and we also uh, learn that there's a vote on a pre-crime initiative coming up. Uh, we spent some time with John Anderson as well, and he is messed up. It was a bit uncomfortable. I'd forgotten about him being a drug addict. Mm. Yeah, and it is a bit that. weird to see Tom Cruise doing that. Like He's out getting drugs in the sprawl. Um, he's taken a drug called Clarity, which is which I take for my allergies. He's watching a hologram of his ex-wife and his dead kid. You know, I send you that thing of the classic dead. You don't. You meant to think she's dead as well as the kid. So the classic dead wife, ex-girlfriend montage, where every single woman is like, "Oh my god, stop filming me! I'm disgusting." (laughs) Obviously beautiful, but in real life, have you ever filmed your girlfriend and she's like, "Stop it!" (laughs) Rather than what what are you doing? Yeah, no, No. I haven't. I haven't haven't filmed my. I have filmed. Filmed Alex's yeah. girlfriend. I don't know who gets wasted and puts on videos of like their dead kid though. That is not what I do. I'm, Avengers: Infinity War and Endgame back to back. That's my. Why are you crying? Have you seen what just happened? <laughs> the fucking Avengers are here. Tony Stark is dead. He's dead. He's not coming back. He's probably coming back. Uh, this scene was sicker in Scott Frank's script. Um, he was manipulating the footage to have conversations with his son. It kind of almost plays like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said it went a lot further, but he believes that this film quite a, quite a few places has pulled its punches to get a PG rating, which he's quite annoyed about. Um, uh, But back to the office, the Justice Department. The Justice Department wants to take it all away and they send down Danny Witwer as an observer, played by Colin Farrell, who is doing Tom Cruise in 1986, I think. He's very good, though. That is the performance. Yeah. Colin Farrell is... Freaking great! Like, and he's only got better. But here, he's he's so good in this role. So good. He's, he's so awful. <laughs> he's chewing gum, and he is kissing the religious icon around his neck. I think that's one too many bits of business. Yeah, I yeah. think you chew the gum or you kiss you kiss the the icon over and over again, but you don't do both. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment later on when they're in the car factory where you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually starting to question whether I think your performance is as good as it is because yeah. I'm starting to think maybe it's just made up of a series of ticks, which <laughs> on first watch made you go, so fucking good. There's so much complexity about this character. But there's a bit where he's, Tom Cruise, he thinks he's escaped. Tom Cruise escapes in the car and he punches his own, the palm of his hand. He does. <laughs> he goes, oh! No one ever does in real <laughs> life. You so, don't go, oh! one per- No, one person does do that and it's Robin from the 1960s Batman show. <laughs> that is his manoeuvre. <laughs> Um, well, Colin Farrell, I'm glad you like his performance in this. I, I do as well, but it's it's in this period where he was 
had a lot going on, yeah. basically. He was drinking and drugging and partying. I think it came to a head on Miami Vice. I think that's the film he says he can't really remember making. But on this film, um, he does say that he, he spoke to the Daily Mirror of all papers about shooting this film. And he said there were a couple of hairy days. I asked them with a great array of arrogance that they not work me the day after my birthday. I said, please don't have me work on June 1st because my birthday is May 31st. I thought a $100 million film would at least listen to that request. But I worked. It was a rough night and I didn't get any sleep. The line was, I'm sure you've all grasped the fundamental paradoxical pre-crime methodology. I only know it now still 16 years later because it caused so much panic and anxiety. It should be on my tombstone. My sister was on the set that day and she had to leave the set after 56 takes. Oh! <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, yeah, and it's interesting when he talks about this period, he says he sort of gets freaked out when he thinks about what he would be like in these films if he hadn't been like disappointed. <gasps> no. No, he doesn't know if he would have been better or worse. He said, yeah. if I hadn't been drinking and drugging, I'd, I'd, I hate to think, would, it, would I have been a better actor or okay, a worse actor yeah. at that time? He said it just freaks him out. Yeah, that yeah. must be hard. But he did he did a fine job. Um, I think sometimes it's that thing where you, you because you work that little bit harder to be good to overcome how you're feeling, you put in the extra effort that you might not do otherwise. Mm. Or you just might be off your tit. <laughs> <laughs> um, then we get this. I, I found this a bit painful on this viewing. This sort of this conversation um, about where he starts asking tough questions about false positives and why they can only see murders that aren't. They aren't satisfactory answered, I don't think. And he heads down to see the precogs and they, it gets quite religious, yeah. the conversation. Um, well, for a start, John Anderson, our hero, says something quite villainous. He says, it's better you don't think of them as human. Yeah. Which I was quite shocked by that line. But yeah, they sort of talk about deifying the precogs and um, it talks about science stolen, most of our miracles. And it's just, they talk about destiny and... I feel like it all gets a bit heavy handed and they're not actually talking to each other. They're trying to express the film's themes. Mm. I just didn't believe it by it as a conversation. Yeah, it's a weird conversation. It's quite depressing when you think about the precogs as well in that conversation. Is that the conversation where they talk about how they aren't really aware of what's going on in the room and that they're so full of dopamine endorphins and have their serotonin levels fixed mm. to be in a state of, I guess, happiness? I sort of, I was on the line, I was like, is that actually a really good job? Just lying on your back in some warm water off your tits on dopamine. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't know what they're aware of until a few seconds later when Agatha grabs John and shows her what we later learn is her mother's murder mm. and says, can you see? And I feel like watching it, whatever, this is the fourth time I think I've seen <clears> it. Watching this time, I was trying to think about it from another point of view. And if you look at this film as Agatha's story, this is the moment the femme fatale starts orchestrating her own escape from prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting thing. So it now turns into a proper neo-noir, um, which uh, they fill with sort of colourful characters, as all great mysteries should. So immediately John goes to see Gideon the Century, played by Tim Blake Nelson. Oh, he's found so good. It, oh, my God, I found him so annoying. Yeah. Really? Isn't that weird? Yeah, I like him, um, but it's just this... It was too, uh, what's the right word? Um, like on purpose, kind of, I don't know. Affected. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I, it's broad. It's very broad. And it's almost like he's come from a comedy. Yeah. Do you know what it feels like? It feels like he's in uh, Danny Cannon's Judge Dredd. Is what it feels <laughs> yeah. like. It feels like the kind of person who'd run the high security prison in a movie like that, a real comic book movie. That said, I, I, I think... 
I think sometimes you just like, I think this happens throughout this movie where Spielberg has clearly just got actors to, you know, have a little bit of fun yep. with these scenes. It happens with Peter Stormare mm. later on Agreed. as well. Agreed. And I don't know if he said it or Scott Frank said it, or it's just the truth is like the, a mystery. You do go and meet five or six colourful characters as you, uh, all of them do. You yeah, know, but it like, undercuts the sort of like the prison is really fun trippy dreamy thing that you could like lose yourself in and then Tim Blake Nelson the way he plays it just undercuts all of that because it like you say it just seems like a silly comic book thing and there are moments throughout this film they start pretty soon like really ramping up where there are these comic touches that feel out of place and it like makes the tone a bit bumpy so uh, like later on when Tom Cruise is running through the apartment block and a, a jet of fire flame grills some burgers that a family are cooking. Oh, yeah. Fucking hated that. Yeah, that's sort of ridiculous. What's the, that's ridiculous. I and then, feel like that's very Spielberg, though. With his action sequences, he always wants to put in a bit of sort of broad right. slapstick comedy. And if that happened in Indiana Jones, you'd be like, sold, oh, yeah, great, yeah. very funny. But in this, mm. I do I do get what V said, because it's, it's at odds with the sort of like this sort of noir tone. But... Uh, the reason that I, I don't mind Tim Blake Nelson's performance is because it's, um, I think it adds something to the idea that like that there is one man who's in charge of this prison and he sort of basically lives there and it's sort of off the grid almost and it's a fairly depressing job and he cooks his own fried breakfast on a little <laughs> stove, not even a future stove, a little Just gas a <laughs> stove. So there's something about that that it works for me. Fair enough. So uh, John takes the information he has about Anne Lively. Uh, the woman who looks like she might have been murdered, to his boss, director Lamar Burgess. Uh, but more on him in a minute because we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, somebody actually runs. <laughs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back with the section I'm calling John Atherton Runs. Because Atherton. That's his name, isn't it? Anderton. 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 John Anderton Runs. I've written Atherton. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh, because now we've got the twist. We've got the, the exciting incident because um, we've got a premeditated murder about to happen. The victim is Leo Crow, And John, using his screen, sees himself pulling the trigger. So he runs. He gets out of there. And I mentioned um, Lamar Burgess before the break, um, played by Max von Sydow. Uh, John now speaks to Lamar Burgess again. Um, it feels like John Anderton doesn't take a piss without telling Lamar Burgess first, <laughs> which is partly a problem for this film. And also, by this time in the movie, on my first watch, I'd figured out he was the villain. Yeah. There was, it just <laughs> felt like he was, it felt like Max von Sydow was playing the villain. Yes. In in a weird way. You know, that that thing he does, oh, let's meet, let's meet. And yeah, come just, over. No, really come over. I, I really bet, want you to come over. This is one of the bits I didn't like about the movie where I just felt like he was light he was he was in, in plain sight too too much for me. Yeah. Um and now we get three action sequences in a row. Uh starting off with some cars driving vertically and Tom Cruise jumps from car to car. Alex, you're our action man. Did you like this? Meh. I don't. I wanted to. There's, I don't really understand why I don't. I guess it probably boils down to the fact that it's all CGI, and so there's li- literally there's not nothing to grip onto that makes it feel real. You're watching magnetic cars on a vertical road that you don't recognise as anything like mm. that features any of the uh, the physics of of reality. So you're like, well, what is this? It's, there's no tension. Like you know, I, it's weird that in an action sequence like that, you go. I guess the best thing is the weird yoga upside down woman at yeah. the end. That's like the most fun part of it. If that's the best bit, then we've got a problem. But I'll go with Vicky. Like, I mean, what do you think of this bit first? Yeah, I'm, I'm with, I agree with you. I agree with you. It, look, mm. it, looks, it looks like a cartoon. Mm. But then we get onto an even worse bit, which is jetpacks. Yeah, well, before then, we've got uh, a scene where we see advertisers targeting people using their retinal scanners stuff that's happening now this is all coming true mm-hmm. uh, we're told that that retinal scanner is to protect us but also to track us so like what bill gates is doing with his vaccine at the moment mm-hmm. and um you but- might need to clarify that you don't mean that <laughs> you don't mean that do you <laughs> uh, we'll say no for the purposes of our lawyers um, <laughs> we just want to say i have nothing to do with this <laughs> we have lawyers <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're on the train when we get cameo crow Cameron Crow cameos. Did you oh, not see the no. guy? The guy reading the paper. The guy reading the paper, staring at him, looking oh, at his paper. That's, that's Cameron Crow. Because they're and, really good friends, aren't they? They obviously. just made Vanilla Sky. Right. That ah, makes yeah. sense. So that's a good, solid cameo. But as Alex says, we then get uh, the jetpack scene. Um, Stupid. How? How can you get this far in your career? And like Steven Spielberg needs to go. That looks stupid. Let's lose the jetpacks. <laughs> I mean, I, his gauge on some of the things, the fact that the guys enter that spaceship hovercraft thing like the Thunderbirds in the first place is like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. They go into it like the fucking Thunderbirds. Yeah. And then when they're landing in the street, I mean, I, I, I don't know, you must have gone, 
Hawkmen. I was like, they look like fucking Hawkmen. This is Flash Gordon yeah. level of people landing. The trouble is because the the way the jetpacks are weighted, their center of gravity is like so. It's like their bum is slightly up in the air rather than be. They should just be purely vertical and be called like whoosh. But they've they've got their bums up, mm. which always makes you look a bit silly. Steven Spielberg said he was inspired to do that by Flash Gordon. <laughs> Worth. Go on. Seeing a bloke uh, land at the 1984 LA Olympics in a jetpack. In 1984. <laughs> he saw that and thought, I'm going to do that in a film. Jetpacks, I can't think of a movie where jetpacks work. I'd be interested to know if anyone can. I just, the, to me, they are always something you go, cool, there's a jetpack. I'm oh, Ma- wait, that's not cool. Iron Man. <laughs> not a jetpack, though. It's yeah, a whole it's, suit. It's, it's not it's, a jetpack. It, no, because um, no, because of the things in his hands. That's how he directs himself so nimbly. Like a jetpack is just on the yeah. back. Anyway, I'm man a rocketeer. We done, we done them. You must went there that week. Oh, yeah. uh, we get a glimpse at the six sticks. <laughs> Anyone fan of the six sticks? That's a great idea. <laughs> great. That's good. That's fun tech. Yeah. Because all the weaponry in the future, the idea is non-lethal because no one can be killed, um, murdered rather. So we end up in a factory. Um, this is another scene that Scott Frank isn't totally happy with, but because he says it's. it's Stupid. Yeah, and also because it's three action scenes in a row, which he said is just but not also, something he would he gets, write. He gets sealed inside the car, and then he's like, oh, look, this car drives, and it's fine, it's the future, so it's powered on electricity, presumably, or whatever. Who opens the fucking doors to let him out? Hmm. So he powers off, and Colin Ross like, curses, and like smashes his palm. Oh, what conveyor belt of cars ends with the cars just rolling just off, off, finished, yeah. and straight out the door? <laughs> uh, that you're off to meet your owner. Right, that's it. Off so, you go. So Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock wanted to do a car factory sequence where the characters are walking along and a car's being assembled in the background and when they get to the end of the assembly line, the car is finished and a body falls out of it. And that's what inspired Spielberg mm. to put this in this movie. Uh, before he's in the car, though, we've got the fight on the moving platform. Again, I'm not sure about Whitwer kissing his cross before he goes yeah. to punch... It feels just too much business going on. Yeah. Oh, he spits thought... the blood, and then a minute later, he's kissing the cross. Forgive and it's me, like, Jesus. <laughs> just get on with I your fight. I thought he was kissing it because he'd sort of made a, a leap of faith to get onto the platform in the first place and could have fallen off and hurt himself. And so it was a thank you for keeping me safe this far. Maybe so. I just, as I say, too much business. Uh, but Anderton then heads to uh, Dr. Iris Heinemann's greenhouse. Oh god! Oh yeah! What on earth is this? So no, in, I, I, do, I like it because it's weird. <laughs> it's very weird. We've got now we've got poisonous sentient vines that attack you when you climb over a wall. This yeah. is like, what's wrong with the scene is that she just tells him everything, just everything. Yes, he he briefly gets poisoned while she does this lengthy exposition dump explaining that the precogs are kids of drug addicts who were being tested on. Which is that? I, I meant to check this. Is that the plot of Stranger Things? I feel like that's where Eleven oh, comes from as well. She was tested on to yeah, make her like that. And the, the mothers were, the parents were given drugs as well, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so the, yeah. So that, yeah, you're right. But um, yeah, it's it's strange, isn't it? And then she kisses him. I find that a strange but moment. That to me is like talking about like sort of shoehorning in these moments that don't quite work. So the burgers, then later when he loses his eye and it, it falls down that drain, stupid. But this. You don't often see a woman of an older woman do that. And if you are honest with yourself, when you watch the scene, you're like, there is sexual tension in here, but I must be misreading it because I've brought all my like judgment to this scene and to an actor of that age, and there's no way she's gonna do it. <laughs> Which she does. So good for you. But it's a weird like I don't mean weird as in like a judgy way, but just a sort of off-center touch which elevates the scene I think because she's such a good actor and mm. he's good in it as well you get away with this huge exposition and dump she, just she really by doing that kiss I, I just thought about this she really straddles generations because at the start of her career she kissed James Dean on screen 
Oh, okay. In East of Eden. Oh. So uh, she's, uh, Lois Smith is the actress. She's 91 now and she has three films in the can, including the new Wes Anderson movie. Really? Wow. So she's still going strong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll i be completely honest with you, switched off in that scene. It was okay. just too much information. There is a, there is a, a finite amount yeah. of exposition that you can take in and manage to retain. Yeah. But I know why you switched off, Alex. It's because uh, he's got to find the Minority Report we find about now. They use the, the title in the scene here. And uh, she says, it's always in the more gifted of the three. And, and Anton says, which one is it? And she says, the female. Yeah. So Why doesn't she say, obviously? Like, it really bothers me. It's like, I thought after everything that had happened and the kiss as well and her, like, there was something that just lends itself to her going, the female, of course. Yeah. It feels like just saying the female... It, they're missing a trick. I would just say when it's, it's three people in a room and two are men and one's a woman, it's the woman isn't always <laughs> the more gifted. I'm just going to put that out there. Oh shit, we'd be the fucking twins. <laughs> yes, that's why. Oh. That's why I use that. <laughs> Getting at mate. Oh, I hate this show. The useless <laughs> twins. Oh, I hate. This All right. Episode. Uh, I hate this episode. The one-eyed man is king. We're into this section. So um, he's worried he'll but... be identified. What? Vicky does have to be held up and helped to walk a lot more than either of us. <laughs> so it does really fit. <laughs> uh, Agatha spends a lot of the time she with does. her arms straight round Tom Cruise going, get me out of here. <laughs> uh, Anderson visits Dr. Solomon Eddy, played by our old friend Peter Stormare, a.k.a. Blonde from Fargo. Um and he clockwork oranges his eyes. Oh, he must so have really hard. done that. Do you know that he did? That he must have done that. Yeah. I'm sure he did. It's so realistic. But our villain is also called Burgess, Anthony Burgess. Yeah. I feel like there's a bit, he's doing a clockwork orange mm. thing in this movie. Did sure. you not feel a bit disappointed? This scene, I think, is brilliant and re- suitably like off kilter again. But mm. it all builds to nothing because the doctor is like, I'm going to take my revenge on you. Yeah. And yes, I burned my patients and now you're drugged and now you're really fucked because I'm going to take your eyes. Oh, no, look, I just did a brilliant job. Yes, I, I guess they're trying to do the unexpected by trying to think as the story's going one way and then going the other. But yeah, it's I, an anticlimax. But I know that's that, that, that is really interesting. What? Why do it? Because on the one hand, you are going this is different, mm. but then for it to not mean anything, that's not how film works. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, just throwing in that information. You think he's going to set fire to him or kill him, or this woman's going to sexually assault him? Yeah, and then or at just... least do something with the eye that pays off later. Yeah. So you think the operation's gone well, and just when he needs those eyes to see. They fuck him. They just leave him with some mouldy sandwiches. They don't leave him with the mouldy sandwich. He makes him a fresh sandwich and Tom Cruise, like uh, Uh, John Anderson picks up the wrong sandwich and then drinks the wrong milk. What? (laughs) So spider bots show up. Um, That's quite good. That's that's fine. I'm... I'm not as scared as if they'd been snake bots. Snake bots would have would have done me in, but spider bots. I'm fine. Shark, quite cute, shark bots. That would scare me. <laughs> uh, Swimming into the bath where he is. He uses a wand to mishmash his face up, uh, basically to give him the deformed face he had in Vanilla Sky. Yeah, very strange that this is like a couple of years after, and he's just got his Vanilla Sky face back. It's quite weird that whole Doctor scene because the film has had this real momentum and it manages to keep it going despite the fact that he at that point it's like 12 hours are going to pass, 6 hours pass in the end but it's a real sort of like a a comma in the whole thing because he's been running and running and running and it's like so stuff is happening and we sort of spend it all in the room with him and Mm. 6 hours have passed. Yeah. I find that quite strange. He goes and grabs Agatha and they get flushed down the toilet slash mm-hmm. reborn. That's good. Bit that of both. Was, I, I couldn't remember that bit. And the fact that he's like, they go, he's, we've got all the exits covered. And you're like, oh, I wonder how he's, hey, <laughs> plug hole. He retrieves what's in her head and we start realising Anne Lively is her mother. And I didn't realise that's Jessica Harper who plays Anne Lively. She's the woman in Suspiria. 
Oh. Yeah, she's a horror horror legend. Um, they're in a mall and Agatha can see into the future, so guides him out of the mall, much like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure when they're escaping yeah, from true. the prison. But it's watching all the all the extras on this DVD, um, Cruz and lots of people talk about how spontaneous Spielberg is on set and I'm thinking is he really I don't know are you just saying that but Scott Frank is interesting he literally called Scott Frank down to set and said we've got an opportunity here to do some kind of exciting chase scene um, come up with something and so Scott Frank had them all location and wrote that entire sequence with the umbrella and the the escape mm. on set on location and they filmed it I think it's really effective I think it's this sort of thing that maybe he was trying to do with the other sort of slapstick stuff where it's a fun sequence the promise of the premise she can see into the mm. future what is it and how is it going to act out and it's not that there is a threat there, but it's mostly just silly fun, like the brolly, like yeah. take the umbrella, like yeah. that. And then the Stand way that behind the balloons, up, and yeah, it's, great. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very effective. Uh, they make it to a hotel. Alex, who's the who's the clerk at the hotel behind the desk? Dude from Swordfish. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> what else has he been in? It's William Mapotha. Yeah, he's in Swordfish. I thought that's why you're bringing it up because we were doing a Swordfish loving. No, he's got a connection. Uh, what's Tom Cruise's last name? Oh, it's Tom Cruise's cousin. He's in quite a few Tom Cruise movies. William, I only know him from Lost. I didn't know he was his cousin. Yeah, sorry, I'm probably saying his name wrong. Mapatha, probably. Yeah, but yeah, he's in quite a few of his films, just popping up. Oh yeah, yeah. He kept the name, but Cruise went with Cruise. He had it quite was his a, middle name. He had quite. I think one of his biggest roles was Swordfish. He was in a few things. He mm. did a lot of henchmen for a while. Yeah. Good. So we're into the hotel room, room one zero zero six. Ugh, the whole six nine thing. At the start. Which is what I'm saying. It's like it is an Agatha Christie story, or it is Poirot, because that is your classic Sunday night telly. Oh. This thing has fallen down off the door. But it doesn't make any it doesn't have any relevance to anything. It's not like no. he goes into one room and then something happens that then Which leads then propels him. him. Yeah. But before he enters, he says to Agatha, I'm not gonna kill the man. I don't even know him. And we as the audience have already figured out that this is gonna be involving his son. How has he not figured this out? Yeah. Who's the only person in the world I would definitely kill? <laughs> that I'm obsessed with. Um, but it's quite an effective scene here. He finds the pictures of his son on the bed amongst the pictures of other children, finds pictures of his son with this guy. Um, and then he's changed his mind. He says, I'm going to kill this man. And she says, you still have a choice. And then Leo Crow walks in and they have a fight and she's screaming and he says, I've killed your kid. And he pulls his gun. And it's kind of the John Doe in Seven plan at the end, isn't yeah. it? To force yeah. someone to commit a murder. We well, yeah. already know he likes Seven. So <laughs> that makes sense. Um, it's, I, I want to know whether they left uh, Leo Crow to come up with uh, the explanation for what he did to his son or whether Max von Sydow, Lamar, actually prepped him and gave, gave him a little script because it's fucking awful. The bit where he goes, I put him in a barrel mm. and sunk him in the bay and then he floated back up. I uh, think it's part of the whole thing. I think it's scripted for him because water, like I feel like there's an obsession with water all the way through this film. I don't know if if, if our villain has it, but... I think it's the the button on it, which if it was written for him or not, but when he says I was gentle, you'd be like, now I'm definitely going to kill you because what the <laughs> yeah, fuck is this? So <laughs> it's so dark. And I think it's quite brave for the script to say that sort of thing because that is just the worst nightmare you've ever had. But John's our hero here because he doesn't go through with it. He does not shoot him. He decides not to do it, but Leo pulls the gun and shoots himself. <sighs> Whitworth shows up a few moments later and he finds an orgy of evidence. <laughs> yeah. Which this is... was all arranged, he says. It's a very fast turn for Danny Whitworth, I think, yeah. in this moment. Yeah. 
Um, and maybe it's showing that he's good at his job, but uh, he's not that good at his job because he heads straight to <laughs> Lamar's place. Tells him everything. <laughs> <laughs> Tells him everything. Uh, we learn about the, the fact that someone's been making murders look like an echo or echoes look like a murder. And then we get the scene that very much upset me in the cinema. What, when Colin Farrell dies? Yes. because really? Because it's the LA Confidential scene. Yeah. It's done so similarly to that, but not quite as well because they telegraph the moment slightly more here where if you haven't figured it out, they kind of tell you a few seconds before. But I just felt like I'd seen that scene exactly, but done much better. And it was only five years before. Yeah. I Super mean, annoyed me. This is, I, it didn't annoy me because I swear that I was watching this going, Colin Farrell doesn't die. He's around at the end of this movie. <laughs> Seen it twice. This is the third time. I really can't remember that he dies in this movie. I always think he comes back at the end and switcheroos and he's like, mm. yeah, sorry about all that, John. I mean, I think it would be effective if LA Confidential hadn't just come out. But it, for me, it's just a, a, an annoying. But I think it, the thing is, the reason it works in LA Confidential is because Jack Vincennes, the, like, the character at that point, is like he, he is a good person or he's back. He's doing good things in a much more obvious way. And he's trying to solve this. Like Colin Farrell, Whitworth's character, he's not actually there yet. He, you need a, a few, you need a little bit more of a breath before you then kill him so we can become accustomed to actually, God, this guy might be the guy to save. Tom Cruise's character, this might be he, like his turnaround is going to impact this whole film, is going to impact Tom Cruise's life. He's going to be there at we the end. We know that. He's pieced enough of it together that we know he's got to the bottom of it. That's why Lamar kills him. But it's too soon. Yeah, that's why he kills this him. This was all arranged. They make him murder. Someone's making murders look like an echo. I know. That's the plot. I'm just saying, for me, as, 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 as a viewer, I just need a little more space between him working it out and him becoming this good guy before he gets off for, for it to have more impact on me because I'm still a bit like, Guy's a bit of a tool. Fair enough. Um, Agatha, sorry, Agatha and John go and uh, meet up with John's ex-wife. Um, what's her name? Laura. And Laura. Agatha describes the life or the sun. They I didn't never... get this. Cause... I did get it, but only on this viewing. Is it like a multiverse thing? <laughs> no, it's confusing. I agree it's confusing, but I think the ending reveals to you what she's describing. You, We think she's describing the life they would have had with yeah. their son, but it makes no sense because that never happened. Yeah. but. The final shot of the movie, she's pregnant. I think what she's describing here is the son, the, the future they're going to have oh, okay. with their, with her newborn baby. He's got, that kid's going to be a runner, with their replacement which baby. is a really beautiful thing. But you don't realise it until the end, and it's probably not a big enough moment okay. to go back and think That's that. That's nice. Yes. Oh, I never worked that out. No, I could because I was sort of, sort of going. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a long winded way to go. But it's really about me and I need you to save me. <laughs> and she spends a lot of time talking when uh, the baddies are coming. And it's like, well, at what point does she know? Could she, could she have stopped her speech a little earlier and gone, run! Uh, but when she screams out, run, I do love the way Spielberg shoots that with the whip pans and the crash zooms and yeah, every, the, the sort of well coming in on John Anderton. Yep. And and this is very late in the, in the show. This is sort of his his final low point because he's now a prisoner in suspended animation. It's all over for him where I think with a couple of scenes, they could have ended the movie, but they didn't because um, I, when you say they could have ended the movie, you want it to end on a bum note. Like he fails, Max von Sydow wins and he gets locked up. It's like Brazil. Yeah. Or, or, or 
he fails, but you know something that he does ends up winning the day. Like they they figure out Lamar Burgess is the villain by something he's done. Like as I say, a couple of scenes just to just to button it. But like I feel like what happens from here, it felt like the end of the movie. Like I feel like the momentum comes out of the movie a bit now. Uh, it's exactly two hours in, and the the rest of it feels like a postscript, except mm. it lasts for twenty minutes. But this is the argument, isn't it? This is what a lot of people say. This is the, a lot of people say that this is all because mm. Tim Blake Nelson says. Uh, you dream the most wonderful dreams. You live your perfect life once you go into these tubes. That life flashes before no, your no. eyes. And so all your all, dreams come true. All your dreams come true. So after this point, he is just in there, and everything that happens mm. after this point is him dreaming in whatever they call it in status or whatever. I, I, I think that's a fan theory that's incorrect, though. Do you? And, and I think if if because if what Gideon said was true and all your dreams come true, why yeah, his, his son would still be dead and yeah. not returning? Mm. So what we get is Laura figures stuff out. She, Lana, she, Lara, Lara, is it Lara? Yes, it's Lara. Mm. Okay, chill out. Sorry, it's because you said Laura. <laughs> you said Lana. It's like between us. I think we should just get it right. It's Lena. Uh, <laughs> She I goes, mean, I think she's bad in this. But. <laughs> she goes to visit Lamar, but she knows too much. He realizes quite quickly, and then he gives himself away so by stupid. saying the drowned. Yeah, the drowned. When line, she walks like, in there, and she's like, "Oh, what about Anne Live?" He goes, "Oh yeah, John mentioned something about drowning, but you know, he was onto it was the wrong thing." And then you're done. That's fine. Like she can't figure. Really, I never said she drowned. Oh, all right, it's, just, it's just one of those. It's clunky yeah. for such a clever villain. Yeah, who's thought of everything and then to admit that he's oops. drowned her. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It's an oops moment. And also, I don't. Remember Lara mm-hmm. being told that um, that she did drown. I don't remember that scene. I think if it, I'm sure it happens where yeah. John tells her that uh, that uh, she drowned, but um, but I don't remember it. So it needs that needed to be bigger so that you realise that she knows that he. That, well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so she goes to get John out of suspended animation. Quick Me- question. Yeah. Why would the eye of a convict get you into prison? Well, why haven't they fucking wiped that from the police headquarters yeah. the minute like, yeah. the minute they go, yeah, so he's a murderer now. We should probably wipe his retinal scan. And <laughs> he's try not allowed in here anymore. He tries to come in through the back door, apparently, <laughs> which the temple has, where he just come in through the back door and go out through a plug hole. It's wipe just his retinal scan. Yeah. I just think with something like this, if it's a low-budget film... And it's someone's first shot or whatever, you would be that you'd be fine. Like, don't worry about it. But these, you know, the highest paid stars and directors and probably writers in the world at that point or whatever, you just need to do a bit better than Lara putting down this packet of eyes being like, that's not my fucking God in. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, at the same time, we've got a big celebration happening because pre-crime is going national. And Lamar Burgess' wife gives him not a gun, she gives him Chekhov's gun, which is the, the worst example of that I've ever seen in a film. We're going to give it to him 30 seconds before he has to use it. Yeah, that's ridiculous as well. Who gives people... They give him a loaded fucking working gun. I thought the joke was going to be... I was like... It Exactly. Yeah. It's like he goes to use it and he's like, I'm going to kill you, John. And he shoots it and he's like, no firing pin because it's a fucking prop gun. <laughs> we learn that Lamar Burgess killed Anne Live Lee Agatha's mother. Um, she drowns in a red coat. Yeah. Don't look now. Yeah. It just happens over and over again, doesn't it? Every yeah. film wants to go at it. Um, and that echo, that vision gets projected at the reception so everyone knows that Lamar's... Uh... <laughs> I like the fact that he can't run. Literally nobody runs. He knows what is going to be played on the screen and he's like, I'll walk out the door and then I'll just stop and close a glass door and then watch just from the back of the room with everyone else because, you know, I like my handiwork. <laughs> I think Max von Sydow literally can't run right. probably at the time. 
Um, so he starts talking about uh, when John shows up, he starts talking about the greater good, thinks, thinking about all the lives that have been saved. Bluetooth headsets. Nice. Yes. Um, Pretty cool. And uh, at this point, John Anderton is uh, dressed as uh, Ethan Hunt from Mission yeah, yeah. Impossible. The Ghost Protocol. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Anderton explains to him the dilemma that he's got. If he doesn't kill him, the precogs are wrong, pre-crime is over. And if he does, he goes away but proves precogs were right and the system works. He repeats that a couple of times like we're stupid. Um, uh, Lamar makes his choice. He says, forgive me, John fires and kills himself so the precogs were wrong and we get uh we get the information in 2054 the six-year pre-crime experiment was abandoned all prisoners were unconditionally pardoned and released though police departments kept watch over them for years to come mm. bit wishy-washy mm. uh john and laura are back together and she's pregnant as i say i think that is what agatha's vision is concerning their life together in the future and agatha and the twins are living in an undisclosed location uh, to live out their lives in peace <laughs> I mean, what is that place? How they, they don't seem like they should be left in a shack on an island on their own <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I just think keep an eye on them. Forget about these criminals. Keep an eye on these people who've been s- sitting in a pool of fluid for six years. It feels like a very happy ending. Yeah. That's why it's a dream. John Anderton's old dream. He's dreaming it all. And it's not what Scott Frank wrote. So, um, and... Frank reckons that Spielberg took his eye off the ball and the studio head as well was very against uh, what he had written. So what he wrote... It's literally word for word what um, Shia LaBeouf said about Spielberg with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. People shouldn't say that about Spielberg. (laughs) So what he wrote was that the precogs are not leading some idyllic existence, but rather in the only place in the world where they can't see murders, which is an island in the North Sea. They can't grow anything there. It's miserable. And Agatha is looking at the only image she has of her mother, which is her dying. Wow. Um, We also learn that following pre-crimes abandonment, there were 137 homicides in DC the next year. Right. So that's how his version of the film ends. He said the studio head thought it was too dark, but Frank believes that they fumbled the film on the one yard line. I do think, um, I mean, it doesn't look like the North Sea (laughs) to me. I don't know about islands in the North Sea, but I always imagine it a bit bleaker than that. Maybe that's wrong. What do you mean? Sorry, the island at the end. Yes, no, that's what he he wrote for it oh, to be. Oh, so that's this not is his right, his ending right, right. is much grimmer than that idyllic. Why existence. the North Sea? I don't know. He, I guess he just decided that was like the most remote place you could be. Horrible place in the to, world. To, to, I mean, it's he's not. been to the Isle of Man, but it's fucking horrible. <laughs> you mentioned. I did think that was quite funny. <laughs> the only yeah. just imagine all, all I keep seeing is murders and oil rigs just <laughs> over and over again. <sighs> and that is it. So, mm-hmm. are we done? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Favorite scene, uh, Mr. Zane. Uh, you didn't actually mention it. Um, I thought it, the most effective scene is the flashback uh, to when his kid is kidnapped and he's in the swimming pool. I just think it's a really. I don't know what what I don't do not have children as we know, uh, and yet both them. The bit in Us that we talked about the other week where she's like, the bit that I think is missing in that is where she can't find her kid 
And in this, it's where he can't find his kid. I just think it's really, really well done, really effective. I mean, if that's your favourite scene, you're pretty fucked up. It's my favourite scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's either that or, or the setting up of the tech, because that's the one I always remember. And I'm really in love with it. Why but do you love that scene then? The Sean yeah. disappearing. Because it's the one place that looks like a play, a now place, mm. because the public pool isn't a futuristic particularly. Well, it's the only pool. scene where they use colour as yeah. well, where they stop using the washed out. And the reason it's so effective is because he's playing a game with him. He's not cross with him. He's not just wandered off or anything like that. Mm. It's, it's, so it's it would feel like very much his fault. He's just playing this little innocent game and he's gone super quickly. And the minute that watch drops into the water, like you know that you're in big trouble. It's a good Spielberg moment as yeah. well, the watch. It yeah. Watching the water. But it's a, I think Cruz is fantastic in that scene when he's sort of running around and like he starts asking, have you seen a kid in red trunks? And it's like you sort of get the panic, the growing panic, the chaos. It's just really good. Yeah. Uh, I'm going for the scene inside room 1006. Um, I don't think this is a film that particularly rewards repeat viewings, actually. But I remember the tension and the suspense I felt and the confusion the first time I watched it. I just thought it played out really cleverly. Mm. Most valuable whatever, um, Vicky. Uh, Samantha Morton as Agatha, even though she does just get dragged around quite a lot. (laughs) Um, When she... She's in an episode of Cracker in the early 90s. And I remember watching that when I was really little. And I was like, she is astonishing. She was, like, she was it, yeah. so good in that. And you could tell that she was just going to go on and just be so intense, amazing. She's, have you seen more than Keller? Like, she's well, I was awesome going to say, that. she made that the same year she made this, which blows my mind. Every now and then I like to talk about on here an actor that has an incredible year. Mm. That is mad that yeah. she did. I only watched it for the first time recently. I mean, it's a tough watch. Yeah, yeah. But brilliant. And she is just phenomenal in it. And so, yeah, to do that and then the Spielberg movie in the same year. But also, yeah, to, you know, obviously a great director, but she brings all of herself to that. She's not like a sort mm. of Hollywood version of, she is just that, um, yeah, intense. I thought yeah. she was brilliant. Alex. Mr. Tom Cruise. Uh, I think he's great. I think he's, you know, I'm reminded every time I watch him that he's, you know, Especially now, because obviously this is back in 2002, but there aren't many movie stars left, actual marquee name movie stars. And, you know, I would have gone out and seen this, uh, and I did, uh, as a lot of people will have done, because his name was above the title. That and Spielberg together is kind of a big deal. And I think he really sells it. Like I think he really works for me in this role of John Anderson. And, mm. you know, I have issues with the film, but I think he is uh, some, he's uh, just like this beating heart in the middle of it. I really like him. Agreed. Uh, I'm going to give Dick some love. Mm-hmm. Um, out time he might not have written this story exactly <laughs> nice um, because Scott Frank I said said that the story the short story when it was given to him he thought he thinks Philip K. Dick isn't a particularly good writer and that his characters are one dimensional and the stories are quite flat and badly written <laughs> but his ideas he really doesn't pull any punches does he uh, but his ideas he's an idea machine isn't he Philip K. Dick and he inspired uh, this story he inspired Total Recall so much great sci-fi and a tragedy he wasn't around to to witness it all because he died just before Blade Runner came out. Mm. So Philip K. Dick. And if you could change anything, what would you change, Alex? Uh, the visuals, I sort of went early on that one, but I really don't like the way this film looks. I don't like the washed out thing, but more than that, you know, <laughs> for because we do movies is a kind of important part of my life. I have a big TV now on which I like to look at a really nice picture. And I... I, I, I <laughs> In the film's defence, I didn't look very long. I just clicked because I was in a bit of a rush. I was like, click, click, I'll watch this version. And then I was like, are there better versions out there? Has this has this been remastered in a, a better way than what I'm watching right now? Because it was still HD, but it was just so freaking grainy and messy and blown out in the background. So I did not like the way the film looks. 
Vicky. Super quick, three things. Laura should be dead. It's annoying that she's alive and we should pick up another female character that's a bit like Laura is so pure and she's this perfect grieving mother and she's very clean and all the rest of it and they get back together with no sort of hiccups. So he should pick up a sort of, let's say, a demure but sleazy woman along the way. That he is then she sort of... athletic? <laughs> I think she might be brunette as well. So that, uh, Hammer Home, if the pre-crime division is closed, let's go to town on the themes here, which is even though... There will be murders now. We have free will back again. So, because that's what's in this story. But the biggest thing is at the end, the precogs are in their beautiful cottage and the screen should glitch so that you think they are actually in Rufus's like VR tank. And that's the only, pl- and so the, what they're experiencing is real is not real. Mm. And then with that one glitch, sequel. Mm. That's cool. That's good about the the crime is back thing because the one thing we didn't mention is uh, the Miranda Wright scene where he sort of, when uh, John Anderton is reading him the Miranda Wrights yeah. for the first time, which I think, you know, they've stopped doing with pre-crime because yeah. they haven't actually done anything. I think it would be nice if he sort of stumbled over it yeah. in that scene, like he's forgotten it because it has been so long since he's had to read them. Uh, my change is harsh, actually, because I love this actor and I think he's good in this film, but I would get rid of Max von Sydow wow. um, because as soon as I saw him, I knew he was the villain. And I I don't know. It might be because of James Cromwell in LA Confidential and them just being quite similar and interchangeable to me, the characters, the performances. And so, yeah, give me someone that's going to throw me off the scent a little more because I love not knowing a twist until the end. And mm. that one, it just I was it was just there in front of me. Sorry, Max. R.I.P. All right then. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Let's do the verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! So, Victoria's Choices, how do you want to run your verdict today, V? Um, I think I will go first. What? Shall I not do that? Yeah, yeah do it. Okay, great. Mix so- it up. We've never had this before. <laughs> Only because when we pick these films, I was pretty sure I knew which way I was going to go because um, of my obsession with predicting technology. Mm. So the the accuracy with which Minority Report predicted technology had, I think it had made it more indelible in my mind, but it turns out for the wrong reasons. The payoffs aren't great. The goofy stuff I don't like. I don't think that works. But it overall made for a really strong impression on me because of the tech. In Total Recall, the amount of shooting, it, I do, that's the sort of thing that just, it's a personal bugbear. It just gets all this noise. I can't like follow. It just, it's just relentless. And I think it saps uh, tension out of things. Uh, but I think it handles the lighter stuff, like the silly running around and the heavier stuff about identity in a much smoother way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cast, because they're, no shade on Arnie, but because they're orbiting around Arnold Schwarzenegger, they do a lot of work because they sort of have to, mm-hmm. particularly Sharon Stone. Um, so I think that makes for a more coherent experience. So total recall. A coherent experience. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right, who do you want to go next? Well, see, no, I, I wanted to go first because I thought I might be the one that might be less predictable. But I'm. Um, yeah. Do you think we're both predictable? Here? I think we're both predictable here. Yeah. I 100% know what Alex is going for. Yeah, all right. So, Alex, <laughs> you go. Really? Yeah. Do you want to go, Chris, or shall I go? What right. did I just say? I just said you go. All right. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's it Lara! It Lara! It Lara! How can you just not listen to me in front of my face? Sorry. I'll go first. <laughs> oh, right then. After you, Chris. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, well, uh, as I said, my note report gets better every time I watch it because I, I guess. Because you watched it twice. 
It's increased. It depends on my mood. This I'm not going to dance around the truth here. Um, look, it's a hundred percent total recall. Like, I don't think there's a conversation to have here. They simply do not make them like that anymore. And more's the pity. We don't use practical effects like that. We don't have directors capable of handling a blockbuster like Paul Verhoeven while still delivering R-rated thrills and jet black humour. And you do not have stars, even though the closest we have to that is Tom Cruise. You just don't have stars like Arnie was in 1990. It's not just nostalgia, genuinely. 1990, amazing. It is nostalgia. Wrap me up in a rose tint of duvet. Like, it's fantastic. It's total recall. Done. Hey! Yay! Yay! <laughs> Win. What were you going to go for, Chris? Well, contrasting forms of movie making, I think it's fair to say. One's sort of grown up sci fi, the other is more extreme and aimed at 13 year old me. Uh, both parables, both strong social messages, both are very good, I think. So tough to pick a winner. Um, Minority Report, I think intentionally so, leaves me cold, making it a film that's hard to love, whereas Total Recall is a proper romp. It's fun from start to finish. It's balls to the wall. I bloody love it. Total Recall all the way. Yay! Three for three. <laughs> Easy this week. What about that? Not that hard. I said it was hard. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> so Total Recall, three for three. A slam dunk, of course. So that is at the end of this week's show. Thank you for listening. Coming up next, the week after next, uh, we're going indie crazy as part of Steven Spielberg's season. Aren't we, Chris? Yeah, respond to the uh, tweet that I will have pinned, I think about Indiana Jones on At Clash Pod and tell us what is your favourite Indiana Jones film and why or any memories you've got of watching those movies. Equally, you can email us at show at clashpod.com. That's lovely. Indiana Jones season coming up as part of Spielberg season. Two seasons for the price of one. But before that, we have another Spielberg week. The clue I gave you was... Oh, you get everything. <laughs> you win. I can't remember. It was a very good clue. I, mean, I liked it a lot. Was it just a direct quote from one of the films? Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a reverse of the quote, so it worked for the other movie as well, because the oh. actual quote is you get nothing, okay. you lose. Oh, very clever. Good day, sir. <laughs> so I reversed it. You get everything, you win. Good day, sir. And you'll realise why right now, because Victoria, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971. Amazing. Oh, lovely, because you love musicals, so that's perfect. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I do love a musical. Consider yourself. Is that in it? Oh, oh, okay. Uh, that is free on Netflix and Amazon Prime. If you have an Amazon Prime account, Christopher, and you'll work out why the quote works now. The clue, rather, 2018 Ready Player One. Oh, lovely jubbly. That's our Spielberg movie. Uh, you have to rent that, unfortunately. I think it's about £3.49 on Amazon and Google Play and YouTube, whatever your chosen provider might be. Um, I couldn't check if they were on Sky because my Sky's on the blink. You have to rent it from Sky. Right, yep. fair enough. So you have to rent it wherever you get it. That is us done for this week. Get your homework in. Ready Player One versus Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. If you haven't already subscribed to us, please do on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Back on Monday talking Willy Wonka. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network. 
Granger for the ones who get it done.